Welcome everyone to worship at Seattle Mennonite Church. We are in the midst of our summer worship series, Listening and Learning. And in this series, we are amplifying the voices of Black preachers by featuring sermons of preachers in our Mennonite church and in the wider Anabaptist family of faith and also the broader ecumenical communities of which we are a part. Today, we will hear from Austin Channing Brown, and some of you may know her as the author of I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. It has reached the New York Times bestseller list, um, maybe again. Um, but she is not just a writer, she is also a powerful preacher. And though she is not a Mennonite, she did once serve as the Chicago city director for the Joint Mennonite and Presbyterian Ministry, DOOR. I'm honored to have known and worked with her in those days in Chicago, and we are excited to share her voice in our worship this morning. Regardless of where we are across the city, the state, and the country, we are gathered on the lands of First Peoples. And here in Seattle, we're on the lands of the Duwamish tribe, a people who are still alive and active in the city and have their home in the Longhouse along the Duwamish River. They shared um, with uh, their mailing community, their mailing list in the last week, an opportunity for solidarity that we'd like to share with all of you. Um, and so Melanie will be posting those links in the chat box. Um, they've asked allies to help uh, get the T107 Park name changed to Ahapus Duwamish Village Park. And the links that you'll see in the chat um, soon, the first one, oh yeah, they are there. The first one is a Vimeo link, which links to a beautiful and informative video that tells the story of the historic site where this park is located along the river, one of the last remaining original shorelines of the Duwamish River. And then the second link is a place where you can submit your park name suggestion. And the nomination form I can attest to only takes a couple of minutes to fill out. And it gives you the opportunity to share that you make your suggestion in solidarity with the wishes of the first inhabitants of this land. I invite you now from wherever you are to join me in our call to worship. And Melanie is gonna post that in the chat box. Uh, and would invite you to just speak whatever part of this you would like to speak from wherever you are. <clears throat> I will indicate when you join me. When we come to this space, we bring all of ourselves together. We bring joy and hope, dreams and prayers, grief and doubt, memories and heartache. Together, God meets us here. God hears our prayers and sees our scars. With open hearts and authenticity, let us worship good and gracious God. We are going to join now in singing, He came down that we may have love.
We light our peace candle each week to acknowledge that we both witness to and participate in God's vision for a just peace for all creation. And today, I wanted to pray especially for our earth, for those who are in the path of coming tropical storms, burning wildfires and the economic devastation in this world's poorest communities due to human-caused climate change. We lament and we pray for a just peace for all creation. Together, we long for a just peace. We pray for a just peace. We choose to live for a just peace. And the peace of Christ be with you all and also with you. Melissa will be sharing with us a story. Okay, and I'm just pondering how stable my internet connection is, even though the router is right there. We'll see. <laughs> I'm going to read a story by one of my favorite authors, Jacqueline Woodson, and it's called Each Kindness. That winter, snow fell on everything, turning the world a brilliant white. One morning, as we settled into our seats, the classroom door opened and the principal came in. She had a girl with her and she said to us, this is Maya. Maya looked down at the floor. I think I heard her whisper, hello. We all stared at her. Her coat was open and the clothes beneath it looked old and ragged. Her shoes were spring shoes, not meant for snow. A strap on one of them had broken. All right. 
here it goes. Our teacher, Miss Albert, said, say good morning to our new student, but most of us were silent. The only empty seat was next to me. That's where our teacher put Maya. And on that first day, Maya turned to me and smiled, but I didn't smile back. I moved my chair, myself, and my books a little farther away from her. When she looked my way, I turned to the window and stared out at the snow. And every day after that, oh shoot. When Maya came into the classroom, I looked away and didn't smile back. My best friends that year were Kendra and Sophie. At lunchtime, we walked around the schoolyard, our fingers laced together, whispering secrets into each other's ears. One day, while we were near the slide, Maya came over to us. She opened her hand to show us the shiny jacks and tiny red balls she'd gotten for her birthday. It's a high bouncer, she said, but none of us wanted to play. So Maya played a game against herself. That afternoon, when we got back into the classroom, Maya whispered to me, bet you can't guess who the new Jack's champion of the world is. Behind me, Andrew whispered, Chloe's got a new friend. She's not my friend, I whispered back. The weeks passed, and every day we whispered about Maya, laughing at her clothes, her shoes, the strange food she brought to lunch. Some days, Maya held out her hand to show us what she brought to school. A deck of cards, pickup sticks, a small tattered doll. Whenever she asked us to play, we said no. The days grew warmer and warmer. The pond thawed, grass began growing where snow had once been. One day, Maya came to school wearing a pretty dress and fancy shoes, but the shoes and the dress looked like they belonged to some girl before Maya. I have a new name for her, Kendra whispered. Every, never knew. Everything she has came from a secondhand store. We all laughed. Maya stood by the fence. She was holding a jump rope, but did not come over to ask us if we wanted to play. After a while, she folded it double, rolled the ends around her each hand, and started jumping. She jumped around the whole schoolyard without stopping. She didn't look up once. She just jumped, jumped, jumped. The next day, Maya's seat was empty. And that morning, we were talking about kindness. Miss Albert had brought a big bowl into the class and filled it with water. We all gathered around her desk and watched her drop a small stone into it. Tiny waves rippled out away from the stone. This is what kindness does, as Albert said. Each little thing we do goes out like a ripple into the world. Then Miss Albert let us each drop the stone in as we told her what kind things we had done. Joseph had held the door open for his grandmother. Kendra helped change her baby brother's diaper. Even mean old Andrew had done something. I carried teacher's books up the stairs, he said. 
and Ms. Albert said it was true. I stood there holding Ms. Albert's rock in my hand, silent. Even small things count, Ms. Albert said gently, but I couldn't think of anything and passed the rock on. Maya didn't come to school the next day or the day after that. Each morning I walked to school slowly, hoping this would be the day Maya returned and she'd look at me and smile. I promised myself this would be the day I smiled back. Each kindness, Miss Albert had said, makes the whole world a little better. But Maya's seat remained empty. And one day, Miss Albert announced to the class that Maya wouldn't be coming back. Her family had moved away, Miss Albert said. Then she told us to take out our notebooks. It was time for spelling. That afternoon, I walked home alone. When I reached the pond, my throat filled with all the things I wish I would have said to Maya, each kindness I had never shown. I threw small stones into it over and over, watching the way the water rippled out and away, out and away, like each kindness done and not done, like every girl somewhere holding a small gift out to someone and that someone turning away from it. I watched the water ripple as the sun set through the maples and the chance of a kindness with Maya became more and more forever gone. Thank you for listening. For the month of August, we'll be singing Jesus Loves Me together. So if there, especially if there are young ones nearby and you'd like to bring them closer, the other thing that we are going to be doing is inviting folks who speak a language other than English to teach us Jesus loves me in that language. So Michael is going to lead us this morning and we're going to get to try it in Japanese. Okay, so Japanese is actually in the Romaji, which is the they actually do have it written in Roman letters and it's, it's never changes. So shu is always shu and wa is already always wa and re o a i su. So it's shu wa re o a i su, shu wa tsu yo kereba. Everything's kind of in little syllables like kereba. Wa re yo wa kutomo, osore wa araji. Wagashi yasu. Wagashu yasu. Wagashu aisu. Aisu means love. Wagashu aisu. Wagashu aisu. Ware o aisu. So we'll do it in English first, make it easy. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. But he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Shuare o Aisu. Shuare o Aisu. 
主は強ければ我弱くとも恐れはあらじ我が主愛す我が主愛す我が主愛す我を愛す。You can do that chorus again. 我が主愛す我が主愛す我が主愛す我を愛す Thank you, Michael. We will now hear a sermon by Austin Channing Brown. This is a sermon that she preached at the Evolving Faith Conference in 2018. It's a story of Rizpah from 2 Samuel. That she reflects on in this sermon. Maybe a new story to you. You'll hear her talk through the story, so we won't read the big chunk from 2 Samuel, but I wanted to give you、um, a bit of a brief、um, introduction here. Rizbah, whose sons were killed by King David because of their potential claim to the throne. As descendants of the former King Saul. And so, in an act of final revenge against King Saul, Rizba's sons were not given a proper burial. And instead, they were hung on an open mountain hillside to decay in reach of scavenging birds and predators. It's a hard story from 2 Samuel. And Rizba, the mother, was outraged by the murder of her innocent sons. She climbed to the top of the hill where they hung in order to defend their bodies for weeks on end. And in her anger and her grief, Rizpa stood up to power the powers, the authorities, in order to fight for justice and dignity for her sons. The sermon will be just under 19 minutes, just to give you a sense of, of time. And,、um, Uh, we will have a chance in Sunday school, the 11 to 12 hour,、um, to have conversation, to reflect together on what we have heard here. So, I welcome now our preacher, Austin Channing Brown.、Um, I,、uh, I want to talk to the people of color in the room. Is that okay? I want to talk to the people of color in the room. It's really easy when a conference is predominantly white to assume that there's only whiteness in the room. But people of color are people and also have an evolving faith. And that faith has been evolving over centuries because of slavery and genocide and lynching and internment camps. And travel bans and changing borders 
Our evolving faith is not new, but it is different. Our evolving faith has to answer some tough questions about history, some tough questions about the present. Our evolving faith often involves a return to the ancestors. Our evolving faith means reading the Bible from the underside. Our evolving faith means starting with theologians of color, like Dr. Will Gaffney. We're here, we're present, and my desire is to say that I see you and that God sees you. The nation has been divided in two. It's supposed to be the nation of God, but ever since its leaders have become obsessed with power, it has been defined by destruction and devastation, vengeance and assassinations. Leaders are rising and falling, fighting and rallying against one another. It doesn't feel like anyone is in control. The kingdom is in chaos. And now a king has been installed, but he and his family members are a hot mess. <laughs> Sexual assault, endangering his citizens, purposefully putting lives at risk, a tug of war over political power, arrogance, rape, incest, murder, death, swirl around the family. But it's King David. He's been chosen by God, right? So better to focus on his successes, not his failures, right? And just when it seems like things might calm down, a famine strikes. The rains have stopped, the land is dry, it's been three long years and something has to give. So King David goes before God. Why is this happening? He asks. God responds because of a broken promise. According to David, a covenant made decades ago was recently broken by the former king, Saul, and now a famine has resulted. So David gets off his knees, goes to the offended party, and asks, how can we make this right? I'll do anything you ask to make restitution. Great, they say. We don't want money or treasures, weapons, anything material. What we want is to execute seven of Saul's descendants. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, friends. It seems awfully convenient that the answer to ending the famine just happens to be retribution against the family who could be convinced of their own right to the throne. But never mind coincidences, right? Never mind decisions born under the pressure of political power. Never mind travel bans and the criminalization of immigrants. Never mind trans erasure and the black justice fighters who are being placed on extremist lists. Never mind white nationalist rallies and a president willing to call himself a nationalist. Never mind the violence people of color have endured over centuries. There's nothing to see here, folks. Just doing what's necessary for the greater good. This is what it takes to end the famine, people. 
So David obliges and hands over seven young men, all descendants of former King Saul. They are impaled and hung on the hill of God. They are innocent. They have done nothing wrong. They simply belong to the wrong family. They are snatched from the streets and from their homes, and they are gone for the good of the nation. Against custom, their bodies remain there for the good of the nation. In an act of terror and intimidation, their bodies are exposed for the good of the nation. Have we not been told the same? Racial injustice for the sake of law? Racial injustice for the sake of order? Racial injustice for the sake of safety? Racial injustice for the sake of your job? Racial injustice for the sake of the nation? But I need you to understand that racial injustice is death for people of color. Until this moment in the story, women have been forced to play pawns, moved across the chessboard of the nation at the pleasures of the powerful. But then comes Rizpah. Rizpah is the mother of two of the seven boys. For years, she has been caught between the conniving, unhealthy, retributive politics of nations. But with the death of her boys, she has had enough. It's not uncommon for those in mourning, like Rizpah, to put on sackcloth. Jacob wore sackcloth after being told his son is dead. David wears sackcloth when his friend dies in battle. Job wears sackcloth when his life is devastated. But Rizpah doesn't just wear sackcloth as a sign that she's in mourning. She forms an actual sack. She fills it, she throws it over her back, and begins to climb the hill of God. When she reaches the top, she stretches her sackcloth as wide as she can and builds herself a tent. Rizpah has decided to convert the symbol of her grief into a resource for demanding the dignity of the boys. She will stay there. She will protect all seven bodies with her own. For her, this is not a passing trend. This is not a phase. She stares at death and determines that it has redefined her life. She is pissed. And her anger is not wrong. Her anger is not negative. Her anger is not destructive. Her anger is not violent. Her anger points to what is wrong and what could be made right. The anger of nonviolent protesters at rallies and on highways, at restaurants and dinner parties, on college campuses and government meetings is not wrong. I declare to you on this day, your anger is not destructive, it is instructive. Its jarring nature, fueled by anger, does not make it violent. Uncomfortable? Sure. But we must not be fooled by the privileged and the powerful who defend actual violence, systemic violence, racial violence, and equate that to a missed meal at a fancy restaurant. 
your anger points to what is wrong and what could be made right. Do not apologize for not wearing your sackcloth and being sad in a corner somewhere by yourself. Throw that sackcloth over your shoulder and start climbing the mountain of racial injustice, no matter how uncomfortable it makes people feel. For days, Rizpah determines that she will not let bird or beast feast on the bodies of these boys. But days turn to weeks and weeks to months. Rigor mortis sets in the first day the bodies were hung. The stiffness of their bodies is in stark contrast to the active lives they led only weeks ago. The bodies have decomposed before her eyes. The faces are drawn and discolored. She has kept the beasts away, but can't fight the insects that are making the bodies their home. Bodily fluids leak, pooling into a rancid puddle just feet from where she lays. The stench from all seven has been overwhelming, but still she stays. Her body is weary. Her emotional state wanes with each day. She misses her boys, but still she stays. The vultures and beasts can smell the bodies too. They swoop and call. They crawl and pounce. They came for an easy meal, only to meet a fierce competitor in Rizpa. She waves sticks and throws stones. She screams and stares them down. She is dirty and she is scared, and she is putting her own life at risk. But still, she stays and fights. I imagine Rizpa may have had an abundance of energy when she first climbed that mountain, but now she's tired and lonely. And her body hurts, and her heart hurts, and the kingdom has moved on. I don't know how she did it, but here's what I think. I think she looked at those bodies and remembered their humanity. I think she remembered the way they used to play at her feet. I think she remembered their first words and the first time they learned to clap their hands together. I think she remembered Trayvon's smile and Mike Brown's laugh. I think she remembered how much Jordan liked music and how Sandra had hopes and dreams. I think she remembered their humanity. You see, Rizpa refuses to be taken in by the message of dehumanization. Everyone else looked around at those decomposing bodies and were disgusted, but Rizpa refused to let religious notions of piety become the catalyst for her own inhumanity. While she fights, of course, the people are talking about her. Poor dear, lost both of her sons. At first, they probably pity her, maybe even silently support her, but only under their breath, never with their bodies. But the comments become increasingly vicious. She has lost her mind. She's hysterical. A woman gone mad. Then they start to get a little creative. She's a snowflake, a social justice warrior. She's toxic. She's just trying to divide us all. She's just practicing identity politics. She doesn't really care about all those boys. She's a heretic, up there with those decomposing bodies. God can't be pleased with her decision to live there. Y'all just let me know when I get to yours. 
<laughs> I've seen her up there, and she has lost all civility. She's the real racist. Uh, just watch how intimidating she is. She isn't a team player. She's always looking at the bad side. Such a cynic. She's an enemy of the nation. She doesn't care about the greater good of everyone, just her people. I mean, don't all lives matter? They talk, and they talk, and they talk. And while they talk, Rizpa fights. So I've decided. Call me a snowflake. Call me an SJW. Call me toxic. Call me divisive. Call me the real racist. You can claim that I'm a career identity politics person or a paid protester. By all means, declare that all I do is make white people feel bad or feel guilty or feel shame. Go ahead, talk all you want. Tell me I'm not a real Christian or that I'm leading others astray or that my message has nothing to do with the gospel. <laughs> I've heard it all. Please feel free to add to the chorus of folks who believe that black lives are not worth fighting for. But while you talk, know that I'm getting on this mountain until the dignity of every black life is honored. I'ma be right here. Rispa has been fighting on that mountain under the hot sun for months. She sits under the sackcloth to have another cry as she stares at the bones of the boys from her hiding place. She can hear the vultures circling above her head once more, waiting for her to fall asleep or give up. She is undone when all of a sudden she hears wheels turning over grit and dirt. At first, it sounds like only one chariot, but then she can hear that there must be more. The noise of horses grow louder as the cries of the vultures fade in the commotion. Rizpa emerges from her makeshift tent and is shocked to find herself staring at the king's attendants. Because the people were talking, her story moves King David into action. She was speaking truth to power, and finally, power concedes. He cannot bring the boys back, but he can dignify them. He can take them down. He can bury them properly. He can acknowledge that they were loved. He can come alongside Rizpa and by his actions declare that she is not ridiculous, that she was doing what was right all along. He can join her in doing what is right. Dear friends who have been fighting for racial justice for a long time and are wearied only by the ramping up of the need to fight for racial justice, 
I need you to know that you are a part of Rizpah's legacy. You who experience injustice in your bodies, in your families, in your communities. You are Rizpah, who has potential to move the king. We join Ida B. Wells, who wrote against lynching, and maybe Till Mobley, who placed her murdered child in an open casket. We join Sabrina Fulton, who shared with us the life and death of Trayvon Martin and Leslie McSpaden, who marched up and down the streets of St. Louis to remind us that perfection is not a qualification for avoiding execution in the streets. The legacy has potential to continue in us. So I declare you, Rizpa, who fight for racial justice. I declare you, Rizpa, who fight for the incarcerated. I declare you, Rizpa, who work for the rights and well-being of queer people of color. I call you, Rizpa, who refute at every turn the message that the Latino community is to be feared. I call you, Rizpa, who fight for indigenous lives. I call you, Rizpa, who recognize the suffering in the AAPI community and resist model minority myths. I call you, Rizpa, who fight against Islamophobia. I call you, Rizpa, for you have the courage to be angry and the love required to pursue justice, to step into lost causes, to speak truth to power. I call you, Rizpa, and today, if your evolving faith means standing before tombs and believing in the possibility of life, I want you to know that you are not alone. Amen. Let us breathe together. Ah. Just notice your experience. Hearing the story of Rispa, of her courage. The image of Rispa in mourning, standing up to power, standing up to King David. Is she like the resilience of our protesters on the street? the efforts to defund police, abolish militarism, and the prison industrial complex, and dismantle institutional racism. Let us hold all of those things. Take in a breath. Take in another breath. Let it out with a sigh. <sighs> Our prayers today, I will read from the chat box. You can direct them to everyone or Thalia and Jonathan's screen. The first part of the prayer is written by Sarah Ari. 
God of creation, humanity is capable of such evil. Stories in scripture, along stories on the news, remind us of that truth all the time. For the moments when we choose violence over peace, exclusion over inclusion, and fear over hope, forgive us. When we choose pride over what is right, and comfort over justice. Show us mercy. And when we numb our pain instead of leaning into empathy, unravel us. For we long to be changed. Hear now the prayers of your people gathered in your name. We pray with the people in Iraqi Kyrgyzstan. May they celebrate the Eid in peace. We pray for farmers, shepherds, and small business owners who try to provide for their families in the midst of the pandemic, while Turkish drones and soldiers target them. We pray for the end of Turkish military operations in Iraqi Kyrgyzstan. Hold us all today as we said goodbye to a beloved father, grandfather, and friend this week, Hugh Delante. We are grateful that there is no more pain for him. He has been a blessing to this community and we are grateful for the ways his family was able to walk closely beside him these past few years. We hold in our prayers Jennifer Delante, Whitney, Evan, Vanessa, Malcolm, Greg, and the rest of their family. May he rest in peace, embraced by your eternal care. We pray for Roxanne, a beloved friend of Jennifer's, who has become a beloved member of our church community, all the way from Atlanta in these Zoom church days. We join our prayers with hers and ask for your healing for body and for spirit. We hold in our hearts all that who are struggling at this time, and we think of those who live alone, those who are most isolated from human companionship, especially our sister, Maxine Nord. May she, even through confusion and extreme isolation, have a deep sense of peace and know that she is not alone. May your spirit comfort and companion her, giving her an abiding knowledge that she is beloved to you and to us. With schools going online this fall, God, we pray especially for our families with kids for and for our teachers. So much about this time feels impossibly challenging with no good solutions. Grant each one of us wisdom, compassion, patience, 
and a healthy dose of creativity and imagination as we seek to find our way through. Oh God of the wildfires that are again blazing in our state, we give thanks for all those who are working to prevent and suppress these fires and pray especially for all in harm's way. Keep us safe. Those who are fighting the fires, those with homes in their paths, and also the beloved four-legged and winged creatures who call these forests home. We are grateful too for King County's application this last Friday of 24-7 shelter at the Oaks nursing home and pray for the wisdom in considering the operations of that facility by Lake City partners and staff. We pray that all of the decision-making comes together, the funding comes through, and that this may be a real solution for people in the next few years. Thanks be to God. Let's turn to the chat. From Lisa Bade, we think of the Clark family today and pray for Bill. He has been in hospital since yesterday. He is waiting the results of a COVID-19 test. And it is likely that the trouble is with his heart, but tests are still being done. Keep him safe. And with Mike O'Leary, prayers for family of their father's cousin, L. Meyer, who died Friday. We give thanks for the peak of baby Jonathan this morning and pray for Caitlin and Zach as their family of three settles into their home and new rhythms. Hooray! Mm. And from Annalena, we're praying with Mark in his pain as he is dealing with a kidney stone right now. Oh. God be with him. God be with us all. Let us come before God, committing to repair, committing to resistance, turning the tables on racial injustice. Let us make right what is wrong, fueling by, fueled by a just anger. Let us climb this mountain together, black, brown, red, and white. All humanity in our humanness speaking truth to power. God of creation, forgive us and embrace us. Show us mercy and empower us to show mercy to others. Unravel us and recreate us. Give us, give to us the courage and perseverance of Rispa. And we all together say, gratefully, amen. Amen.
And I will also name aloud Ruth's prayer for all students, teachers, administrators, and staff as the fall school year comes at them all. Ooh, indeed, our prayers are with you. We are grateful for all the gifts that each of you offer to our congregation, many variety of gifts, monetary and otherwise. And we are grateful for the means to collect those offerings digitally in this long season of being together while apart. Invite you now into our uh, final song um, led by Michael Bade. And I think Michael, you'll say perhaps a word of introduction and then I will, I'll share the video. This is a song I play, I wrote for church. Well, I, I wrote for me, but I mean, I wrote for church too. Um, and played at least once. Um, and then there's this group of musicians, Mennonite musicians that have been getting together for about 30 years. Every year, at least once, um, they have a retreat and play music. And then when I lived in Pennsylvania, we, we did a bunch of concerts together and stuff. Um, and so just because of this COVID thing, we decided to put this video together as an experiment. And so it's people, musicians, there's like, I think there's close to 10 musicians from all, all around the United States that contributed and played. So I sent them a track of me playing and then they played to that track and, and you know, used their cell phones to record it. And then Doug, one of our members is a professional engineer, so he put it all together. And then my background of course being video, um, I put together the video. So um, it was really a fun project. And here it goes. Be a strength in times of
your strength in times of trouble. Gather us into your hands. Thank you, Michael. The gift of being able to see that earlier, but it really moved me to tears this morning. Thank you. I know I'm not alone, many of you missing that harmony and the layers of music that we create together in community. It's one of the biggest losses, I think, in our church and worship life during this season. Uh, and of course, lots of people created videos and music, um, but to see a few of our own <laughs> and a few additional friends and a couple of those faces from around the country is just a real gift. Thank you, Michael. <clears throat> friends, receive this benediction. May you know yourself to be part of Rizpa's legacy. May you notice, may you notice your own anger and rather than turning away from it, dive into it and, and notice where it's pointing you to something that is wrong that could be made right. May we as a church community, as followers of Jesus together, may we indeed have the power of Rizpah to stay, to stay until each one is offered dignity. It is good to be church with you, friends. Go in peace for this week ahead. Amen. <laughs>